Great to hear that all, all that conversation. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Sedaris. So glad that you're here. Yeah, considers well with others. Actually, a play on words for plays well with others. This should be our report card always as followers of Christ that we consider well with others. So I'm excited to do that this morning. We'll be in Colossians chapter 4. We have just this sermon and one more sermon in the book of Colossians, which we've been going through uh, this spring and into the summer. So if you have a copy of the scriptures with you, would you open to Colossians chapter 4? If you don't, there's some on the ends of your rows. You could have somebody pass that down to you. Feel free to use the table of contents to find the book of Colossians. It's near the back of your Bible. It is a letter written from the Apostle Paul to a church in uh, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, the town of Colossae. And uh, it's been so fun going through uh, this book together. Uh, It's just four chapters, and and it's full, and it's rich uh, with theology about who Christ is and who we are in Christ and therefore how we ought to live in the world. But I want to start today just by telling you a story. I've been telling a lot of stories lately. Uh, My son Grayson's four years old, and his new thing is uh, when I'm laying with him in bed trying to get him to fall asleep, which is quite a challenge, he wants me to tell him stories, and this is how it always goes. He says, hey, Dad... Tell me a story, and then he'll list off five or six animals that he wants in the story, and I will create a story based upon, and I think they're pretty good. I I think if somebody was recording these, we could turn them into books right then and there. So just for instance, a couple nights ago, hey dad, tell me a story about an egg, a tarantula, a fox, a bear, and a shark. And then he just looks at me and he says, go. <laughs> and it's quite fun. So I'm going to tell, <laughs> tell you a story about a bear. No, I'm not going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you a story to start today about a young man that I once knew. This young man loved Jesus. He believed Jesus to be the Christ, that, that is to say the Savior of the world and his personal rescuer. And so this young man, he lived with uh, a joyful assurance that his many sins and trespasses had been fully covered and paid for by the blood of Jesus on Calvary's cross. He lived with real freedom, which resulted uh, from this truth, knowing that because of Jesus' resurrection, he too would one day experience the same thing. He, He truly lived with this kind of freedom in this life, knowing that to be true. This gave him uh, hopefulness that was quite rare. Uh, he knew without a shadow of a doubt that he was loved by God, and so he was, therefore, a lucky man. This young man also lived something of a charmed life. Uh, not only did he know personally the love and hope of God, but he had many friends, all types of friends, friends from athletics, friends from school, friends from other friends. He, he was a beloved person. He had pretty friends, funny friends, smart friends, goofy friends. He went off to college and he had new friends, great friends. He went off and got a job, had great friends, a lot of friends. He was a fortunate soul. Well, the one interesting thing um, was that most all of his friends, most all of them, did not live with this peculiar kind of freedom and joy and love and hope because most of them did not know what Jesus had done for them. Either they'd never been told or whoever told them had done a poor job explaining it. But this young man, he didn't believe that it was his job. He says, it's not my job to tell people He was convinced, he'd convinced himself that his job was to be nice and a likable guy, to be a good friend, good teammate, good roommate, good co-worker. In fact, he'd convinced himself that if his friends really wanted to talk about this Jesus, that they'd just come to him, that they'd come to talk to him. But even that conclusion was questionable. Did they know that they could come talk to him? Um, this, this young man once said that he was 
very confident that one day all of his many friends would eventually decide to come ask him about his joy, hope, freedom, peace. And then he could tell them that it came from Jesus and he could tell them everything else about what Christ had done. But guess what? They never came. They never started the conversation. If you haven't figured it out yet, this young man is me. This was me. And um, this is the way I thought. This is what I thought it meant to be a Christian. And this may be hard to believe now, but I almost always kept my mouth completely shut in every setting possible, whether that was in church, I I never joined Bible study groups, you would have never found me in a cohort. I preferred to be a fly on the wall, keep my opinions and experiences with God to myself, and there were many. So what changed? Because now y'all know you can't shut me up. (laughs) What changed? What changed is I woke up to the realities of a broken world. I woke up and I realized that sin and death and the eternal afterlife are not just ideas to think about, but they're ticking time bombs with real destinies attached to them. I remember the day I woke up. It was March 17th, 2007. That was the day when my older sister Kim was instantaneously, in a snap of a finger, taken out of this world. And 30 minutes after receiving that news, God shook me again and said, time to stop sitting on your hands and hogging my goodness, grace, and mercy for yourself. It's time to start talking. My sister Kim was 26 years old at the time of her death. Some of you know the story. Perfectly healthy. Just cycling while on vacation with her husband Patrick when she was hit by a semi-truck and her clock ran out at 26. It ran out. And if you thought I had a lot of friends, you've never met my sister Kim. I mean, she was magnetic. My sister Kim could make friends with anyone. My sister Kim could make friends with a parking cop. I mean, seriously. She was so loved. And like me, she had a great master plan for sharing her faith. And it was wait. Catch him on the next trip around the sun. Well, Kim only got 26 trips around the sun. Old Beulah. That's what I call the sun. And so she missed her chance to tell her friends about Jesus. In fact, that's how the whole Consider project began. That's why we exist as a church. Because of Kim. On the day Kim died, she went to be with her Lord and Savior Jesus into his presence, and somehow, and I I don't know how this works, somehow she convinced God to send a message back to earth, and she had that message sent to me. And this was the message. Ask my friends to consider Jesus. That's what she said. Why? Because I never asked them. And then she added, And tell them not to wait. So that's what I did. You can go listen actually to that first ever consider message, the message Kim gave to me to share from her at her memorial service. I shared it. It's uh, on the website, or I think you can find on the Facebook page as well. And so I just delivered it. But in the weeks and the months that followed, God kept tugging at me. He kept shaking me. He said, don't you dare go back into mute mode. 
No more Charlie Chaplin Christianity, Dave. And by the grace of God, I listened and I repented of my years of silence. And I started to speak the truth in love. Now, don't get me wrong, I still, again and again and again, in so many moments and opportunities, choose to say nothing and remain silent when doors have clearly been opened for me. In fact, oftentimes it's with those same friends from high school, college, my early career, that I have the hardest time speaking up. But at least I'm not missing every opportunity now, like I was then. And why is that? Why don't I miss every opportunity? Because I'm awake now. I'm awake to the fact that life is short, unpredictable, and if you haven't figured this out, I have absolutely no control over it. The one thing I can control is the words that come out of my mouth. And I want to make sure I make the most of those words. So that's my story. And I want to share it because I want to tell you that I would wrestle with this passage if you had met me before March 17th, 2007. Because what we'll see in this passage is that I have a responsibility to my fellow human beings to open my mouth, to walk in wisdom towards them, and share about the Christ Jesus. So let's read the passage now. Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6. Here we go. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Pretty simple. We get to the end of the book of Colossians, and he's just saying, because of everything about who Christ is and what he is doing, this is how you ought to live. But that's hard. I mean, after last week, if you were here, where we talked about this is how Christians ought to live and love each other within a household, we talked about husbands and wives and children and masters and slaves. I mean, after last week, you're thinking, man, this Christian living thing is really hard. Now what you're all going to be saying to me is, hey, listen, I've got this loving my Christian brothers and sisters well. You know, I can love husbands. I can love my wife, uh, you know, like Christ loved the church and give myself to her and not be harsh with her. No problem, no problem. Wives, I can empower my husband's lead in our marriage and our family. Sure, sure, sure. Children are saying, I can, I can obey my parents. No problem, no problem. Um, Slaves are saying, uh, employees are saying, I can listen to my boss and, and work hard even when they're not looking. So we, so we say, I can do that. Just please don't make me talk to people about Jesus. <laughs> like last week seems so easy now, doesn't it? Felt hard in a moment. And then Paul's like, and guess what? It's not enough to just love like Christ, to glorify Christ. Now you must speak of Christ publicly. Shouldn't have come. <laughs> Just stayed home this week. And if you haven't listened to last week, go listen to last week. These things go together. Loving well within the family of God and loving well those outside the family of God. So let's look at the first imperative. The imperative. Paul says, because of everything else he said about who Christ is, he says, now, continue steadfastly in prayer. Steadfast means continual, devoted prayer. Be devoted to prayer. Only 
If you are devoted to prayer, will you be able to love like Christ loved in those household relationships, in the household of God, to glorify Christ as you ought? Only if you are diligent in prayer can you love like Christ to glorify Christ. What we talked about last week. Only if you are steadfast in prayer can you go beyond just loving your fellow Christians well and start to love those who are not yet a part of the family of God. Only if you're devoted and steadfast in prayer. So if you don't feel like you're doing either or one of those well, where do you start? Start spending time with the Lord in prayer. I guarantee you, these hard commands of the Lord will become easier when you're spending time with your Father. And go back and listen to Joshua Patterson's sermon from a few weeks ago. Fantastic. So what should mark this prayer life? One, Paul says, being watchful, which means being alert, being woke. To what? To what God is doing. To where God may be opening doors for you. And to be awake and aware of the general reality that people are hurting without the comfort of Christ and people are dying without the saving power of Christ in their life. And Jesus can return at any moment. We know not the day or the hour. He will come like a thief in the night. We do not know. So Paul says, be watchful in prayer. Not anxious. We're not anxious people but we're alert or awake. Two, in thanksgiving, with thanksgiving, our prayers should be full of thanksgiving. Have you, good friends, good sirs and madams, have you a thankful heart? That's how I wrote it in my notes, and then I went, why did I write it that way? Have you a thankful heart? <laughs> we're going old school today. Have you a thankful heart? For what? For what God has done for you. Have you heard it so many times that the God of the universe came and put on flesh, lived the life that we couldn't live, died the death that we should have died, absorbed in himself the wrath of God due for our sin, and was crushed by? Have you heard it so many times that you just take it for granted? Sure. That was me. That was me before Kim's death. That was me. But you won't take the work of Christ for granted when you lose somebody that you love. Why can't we? Why can't I pray steadfastly with overflowing thankfulness? I hope the book of Colossians has helped you a little bit. Because Paul is trying to help us zoom out and see what Christ has actually done so that we might be more thankful. That's what he's saying. In thankfulness. Did you hear what I just wrote, Paul says? In thankfulness you should be praying because there's a cosmic scale of the things that Christ is doing and has done. He's removed. Remember we've talked about there is this reality called heaven and it is God's full presence. But there is this cancerous Little creation known as the cosmos. Heaven, meaning the universe, and earth, and human beings. And we've decided to rebel, and, and sin has entered, and it's cancerous. Guess what Christ is doing? We've talked about this over the series. He's removing that cancer one heart at a time. He's reuniting north and south after a civil war. He's gluing us back together again with God so that we can forever be with God. He's removing Satan and eternal spirits from our presence and replacing them with the full renewed presence of God himself. Do you see what's happening? How is it that we're not more thankful? Are you thankful that you are no longer dead in this world and subject to these elemental spirits of darkness? Are you thankful that you are alive to God and Christ Forgiven and transferred to his heavenly home, destined for glory and not exile? Are you thankful? Do you see it? Do you see who the Christ is? 
The Christness of Christ. Do you see it? Why are we not more thankful? Paul says, just your prayers should be just overflowing with thankfulness. You see, if we practice this repeatedly, devotedly, praying with thankfulness for the work of Christ in our own life, and not just thank, like we should thank him for all the little things too, for our daily bread, for promotions, um, for sports victories. Sure, we can pray for everything, but are we thanking him for the big stuff, the putting the world back together stuff? If we did this day in and day out, if we regularly rehearsed out loud, out loud, if you don't ever pray out loud, try sometime just praying out loud thankfulness for the cosmic work of Christ, the cosmic reality of the gift of grace. If you prayed that out loud often, I think we'd have a much easier time talking about what Jesus has done and what he means to us in public with friends and with family if we're rehearsing this in prayer daily. Thank you, Christ. Let me give you an illustration. For some reason, I've had parking cops on my mind. So let me give you an illustration. A couple, couple years ago, right, you put some money in for a specific amount of time. A couple years ago, I was a little late, I tend to be late, and I knew my time was up, and I saw the parking maid standing there, starting to write my ticket, and I'm running, right? You've done this? <laughs> you know, you're always making sure the camera's on you. I'm running, and I say, stop, that's my car, and she's like, I can tell. <laughs> and um, I got there, and I said, please, 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 I'm poor. <laughs> I'm starting a church. No, I didn't say that. But I said, no, come on, I'm, I'm here right now. It's just a few minutes over. And sure enough, and this is very rare, she said, okay, I'll let you off this time. But never again. Well, guess what I did? I had experienced her mercy and her grace, and so guess what I did? I went and told everybody about this wonderful woman who happened to bestow upon me such a great gift. That's what you do when you experience mercy and grace where you do not deserve it. You tell everybody, right? I couldn't shut up about this lady. She, 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 I had made her into a god. <laughs> Jesus didn't just not write you a ticket. He went all prices right on you, and he said, and here's a new car! Right? Serious. And we don't talk about him much, do we? What's wrong with me? Why can't I talk about the mercy and grace of God, but I can talk about a parking attendant who saved me a few bucks? Verse 3. At the same time, Paul says, Pray also for us, and here he's talking about himself, probably in Timothy, who's helping him write this letter, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Now, remember at this time, Paul is in house arrest, writing these letters. He's in prison uh, for the work he's been doing for the gospel. Um, He's awaiting trial. He's literally chained to a Roman soldier as he's writing these letters, and he prays. Pray, he says, he asks, please pray for us that doors would be opened. Are you praying for open doors? Paul needs prayer for open doors. Chances are you probably do as well. Now here's the thing, you don't get to open doors. It's not your job to kick down a door. You literally just wait and God through his spirit will open doors. If you pray for them. But it is your job to be near enough to the door so that when it opens, you can walk through. So one of the principles here at Sedaris, we have 14 gospel-informed principles. Um, One of them is aggressive availability. And aggressive availability doesn't mean that you're kicking down doors everywhere you're going. You're not Dog the Bounty Hunter, okay? You're, You're literally just waiting by doors, aggressively available in case they open. But if you're so far removed from outsiders 
that when those doors open, it takes you 45 minutes to get there, that door's going to close. So are you near enough to these doors, and are you praying that they'd be open? Um, when I was in high school, I won't tell you why, but I got into some trouble, and I had to do some community service. was not a perfect child. There was fire involved, and houses, and anyhow. For another sermon, you got to come back. I'll, I, don't, I won't tell you when I'm going to drop that one, but it's a big, great story. <laughs> and so that I didn't go to jail, <laughs> I had to do community service. And um, we just is, went door-to-door picking up uh, paper bags to recycle them. Really changing the world. But <laughs> door-to-door picking up. So we go up to a door, me and my friends who also got in trouble. It was a, it was a group crime. Uh, we also got in trouble. And we'd knock on the door, right? But we'd always knock really quietly, Right? Why? We really didn't want people to come to the door. Why, why didn't we want them to come to the door? Well, it's really embarrassing, especially we didn't think, let's go to somebody else's neighborhood. We did it in our own neighborhood because we're lazy. We're like, this is going to be embarrassing. Why are we doing public, you know, like raising money for a football team? No, we weren't. We were avoiding jail. So we didn't want to have to explain to people why we were doing So we'd knock just really, oh, oh, guess they're not here. <laughs> and then sure enough, somebody would come and like, oh, shoot, you know. And we'd often knock and then walk away really quickly. And, you know, we didn't give them much time. Here's my point. How hard are you praying for open doors? Like you, you tell, oh, I pray for open doors. How hard are you praying? Do you really want them to open up with your best friend, with your sibling, with your parents? With the co- like, are you actually knocking hard through prayer? Because you're just like I was. You're like, hmm, if this door actually opens, it's about to get awkward real quick. Why? One, nobody likes to talk about this stuff. Two, guess what you'll have to do? You'll have to admit your sin if you're going to share the gospel. Because that's what the gospel is. I was a sinner. Well, what were those sins, Dave? Well, there was some fire and a house, right? Like, how hard are you praying that God will open doors. Some of us need to do a heart check. Your silence is not your love. Do you hear me? Your silence is not your love for your neighbor. Open door for what? For what? Look at the text. Open door for what? For the word. Here's the very good news. It's not you that changes people's hearts. It's not you that transforms them. It's not you that leads them to repentance or to new life in Jesus. It's the Word, the powerful Word of God. Your job is simply and clearly to deliver the Word, which is the message about Jesus' life, death, resurrection, on account of sinners, and for the renewal of all things. That is is your job. And Paul calls that the mystery of Christ. Why is it a mystery? It's a mystery because it was unknowable and it is unknowable without revelation. That's what makes it a mystery. It's like a known mystery. Still beyond us, but we know about it. It's a known mystery. Jesus has made the mystery of Christ known to us in his person, in his teaching, and through sending of his spirit for inspiration. It's a known mystery for those of us who have heard it. And God's desire is that it's a known mystery for the whole world. For all people. The only thing getting in the way of it being a known mystery for all people is me and you. Our Charlie Chaplin Christianity. And if you don't know who Charlie Chaplin is, I can't help you. It's not like an 80s reference. It's like a... Anyhow. Look it up. The word, which is news, meaning it's already happened, the news about Christ must be declared, Paul says, which is spoken, acoustic blasts, out loud. And it must be spoken clearly. So sometimes they say, do you understand the words? 
that are coming out of my mouth. <laughs> and most not yet Christians say, well, actually not. <laughs> you have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, many would say this when we try to explain the mystery of Christ. So Paul says, even for himself, pray that I might do better, that I might be more clear. We must do better. We must practice with each other. We must try new ways of articulating these profound cosmic truths. We must revise those explanations, revisit them, reduce them when necessary, repeat them until it becomes clear because that is how we ought to speak about the mystery of Christ. But it takes some work. It's hard. But remember this too. We must pray that we become clear. Even the great Apostle Paul needed prayer covering him in order that he could be clear. He wrote the book and he needed prayer to cover him so that he could speak the cosmic, profound, life-altering truths of Christ clearly. Chances are you're going to need prayer too. So, ask people to pray for you. Perhaps you're going into a conversation that, that you think maybe God's going to open a door. Send a text to a friend. Hey, could you just be praying for me? I'm going in to have coffee with an old friend of mine, and I'm praying for open doors. Could you pray that doors would open for the conversation to move beyond weather? And could you also pray that I would speak clearly if that door opens, that the word may go forth? Could you just pray for me? Just text them. I've had people text me that. People from our church say, hey, could you just pray for me? I'm about to have a great conversation. I can just feel it's an open door. Yes. Thank you for inviting me into praying for you. We're all in this together. We don't build our own little sales territories. We're all in it together. Ask for help. Ask for prayer. This is why one of the reasons we meet in cohort, so that we can talk about, hey, I've started to have these great conversations with my sister or my brother. Would you help me to be clear? Help me not to run. Help me not to Charlie Chaplin it. Yes, I'd love to pray for you. And then that encourages me. Maybe there's somebody, Maybe I need to have a conversation with, with my sister, my brother. You see, we just all got to start talking a little bit more about what God's doing and ask for help. Verses 5 and 6. Now Paul shifts from talking about himself and praying for him, and now he addresses us, all of us. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Verse 5. This is his second imperative. His first was to pray. His second is to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, which is to say live with wisdom. What's that mean? Well, it includes both your lifestyle, so your nonverbal and your verbal life, your words, your speech. It includes both, as we'll see. And it's for every one of you, meaning... Not just for the evangelists. I'm pointing at myself. I don't even know if I'm an evangelist. But I don't do this because I think I have the gift of evangelism or because I'm a pastor. It's because I read this and I think, I think I'm supposed to be talking out loud. And somebody gave me a microphone. <laughs> all Christians are to declare the mystery of Christ. All, all, all. You know, some people have the discussion, um, if you've been in the church, well, I, I read that there's a gift of evangelism, a spiritual gift, and God doesn't give all the gifts to all the people. Uh, so maybe I don't have the gift, and so I don't need to talk out loud. Charlie Chaplin stuff, so that's good with me. Um, no, 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 no. That's a misunderstanding. There is a general call, like we talked about last week, it's that second layer of calling, for all Christians at all times, in every place, to declare out loud the mystery of Christ. That's the general call to evangelism. Nobody's off the hook there. We're all called to it. Then there's a special spiritual, unique gifting that God gives some that's called the gift of the evangelist. So to some people, God gives a special gift, the gift of the evangelist. General call to evangelism, gift of the evangelist. If you meet somebody with the gift, of, uh, gift as an evangelist, what usually happens is they just start talking about the menu at a restaurant, they're like, I think about getting that. And they're like, I, Jesus, I, I repent. <laughs> it's like anything they say. And that's why I don't think I have the gift of, of the evangelist. But I do truly want to live into my general call to evangelism. Uh, read with me here Ephesians 4, uh, verses 25 to 29. Paul says, 
uh, the same thing in a group of letters that he sends to Asia Minor. He says this to the church in Ephesians, okay? Go, go back one there, Kurt. Okay. Now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Did you hear that again in Colossians? Paul's kind of like a broken record. He says the same thing in all of his letters. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened by their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Don't change the slide yet, Kurt. And then he goes on and says, therefore, at this point you're thinking, wow, probably what we should do is separate ourselves from these people living the old life. These people who are darkened in their mind and calloused, alienated from God, futile in their thinking. Stay away from them, right? That's the way. In the new life, we should stay away, except see what Paul says in the very next verse. Therefore, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are all members one of another. Isn't that beautiful? Yes, there's a reality that those are, that are currently outside the family of God aren't seeing things clearly. They're living into desires that God does not want them to. And yet Paul says, go talk to them. Have a conversation with them. We're all members one of another. We're all sinners in need of the gift of grace. It's for all Christians at all times to share the goodness of God with your neighbor. Back to Colossians 4. What does it mean here to walk in wisdom? First, it means be normal. Seriously. That you believe that a Jewish man 2,000 years ago died on a cross and you're forgiven, that's strange enough. So don't be, ab- don't be purposefully odd. <laughs> Just like be normal. We see Jesus doing this all the time. Zacchaeus invites him, goes over to Zacchaeus' house, parties with the tax collectors. He's just being normal. It's already strange enough that he can walk on water and stuff, so when he doesn't need to be, just be normal. Be normal. Two, be observant. Wisdom means learning what your neighbors like, your coworkers enjoy, sharing in their passions when you can, listening to them, asking questions, genuinely caring, observing their life, Be interested in them. Walk in wisdom. Third, be in need. Be in need because you are in need. There's always something that others can help you with. There's wisdom in in sharing that with your neighbors, with those who are outside the family of God. Don't pretend that you have it all together and that somehow now because you have Jesus, you're not in need. The best definition for what a Christian actually is goes like this. A sinner who needs and accepts God's grace. Fundamental to what it is to be a Christian is to be one in need. And if in the rest of your life you pretend as if you need nothing, you're ruining your witness. You are in need. So feel free to ask outsiders for help. That's wisdom. Let's give you a quick story here. Uh, this just happened yesterday. For months and months now, uh, my fence has been broken. It's just been sort of hanging off, leaning against a tree. And we have two young kids, and my neighbor, his kids are growing out of the house, and he's been so gracious and kind to me, and he's helped me. I think technically I own the fence, and it's my responsibility. Uh, but I literally, my grandfather was a carpenter, my savior was a carpenter, but my father was an accountant. <laughs> okay, so. I know nothing about fixing fences. I have a few few tools. I just always buy the cheapest tools possible so I can look like I know what I'm doing. And I I don't know what I'm doing. I was in need. And finally, it came. I didn't actually have time yesterday. I had to work on my sermon. So if it's not good, you can blame Pete. Um, But he said, today's the day, Dave. Let's fix the fence. Now, wisdom for me is I can put it off again. I've already put it off a couple times. You know what? 
This is important to Pete. His yard's very important to him. I've watched. He spends a lot of time, him and his wife, cultivating their garden. And I'm sure to have this fence hanging off and to see our kids running around and I'm sure. So, so wisdom says, you know what? It can wait. Stay up a little later tonight, no problem. Let's fix this fence today. And I was in need. I didn't know what I was doing. Pete, I don't know what I'm doing. I can write you a check for everything you've bought to fix this fence. But I said, I want to help you. Teach me how to fish. I said this to him. Teach me to fish, Peter. He didn't get it the first time. And I said it to him again at the end of our day. I said, Peter, we fixed the fence. He taught me a lot. I learned a lot from him. I said, I'm so thankful you taught me to fish. I said, Peter, you've done your namesake great justice today. And he said, what are you talking about? (laughs) I said, Peter, the great fisherman, you taught me to fish. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah. And we went on our way, and, and there's some more parts of the fence we'll probably fix in the future. You see, it's so simple. You don't have to do a lot. Just show wisdom, courtesy to outsiders, to your neighbor. What's Paul say? Making the best use of the time. The Greek word here literally means to buy up time. Why? Because time is precious, and you don't know how many opportunities you'll have to speak the truth in love. You don't know. So don't let opportunity pass by unless you know for sure that the timing is wrong, because there are times where the timing is wrong. So for you youngins, not young bins, you youngins, I see you, you youngins, don't waste time now because you're so young and you think that it's endless. You have no idea how much time you have on God's green earth to proclaim the goodness and grace of God to the world. You have no idea, and guess what? It goes faster than you think. Oldies. Oldies. See some of you. Don't coast to the finish line. Don't just assume, don't just say, I'm counting time served. If he's giving you more time, it's for a purpose, don't waste it. Your time is a precious gift from God, all of you. Will you use it to have great, life-altering conversations about your Savior, or will you literally burn it up on conversations about the weather and sports and hot topics? Just going to burn it up. Just a pile of cash, just... Light the match. Then Paul says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt. Not enough, again, to just walk in in a non-threatening manner, doing good deeds amongst the outsiders. You must speak. Let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt. Our conversational chops must be gracious and seasoned. Gracious means this, civil, kind, thoughtful, controlled, respectful, curious. It's the opposite, actually, if you just flip back one page to Colossians 3, 8 through 9, where Paul says, don't let your speech be like this. He says, put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. He said, and then he goes and says, the opposite of that is gracious speech. So, so don't let your speech always be angry or wrathful or malicious or slanderous or obscene. That's not gracious talk. You should be fun to talk to. And that brings us to salty. What does it mean to be salty? What does it mean to be salty? Well, it means just don't be boring. Seriously. Don't be a bore to talk with. And be filled with truth. Bring truth to the table. So don't be boring and have truth, be witty and insightful and whimsical and friendly and clever. It should be fun to talk with you. You're a child of God. If somebody said, oh, where did you come from? I came from heaven. (laughs) I'm a child of God. They would generally be excited to talk to you, but then they start talking to you like, this is kind of a bore. I don't really want to go there. Did you talk to an Australian? You always want to visit Australia. It's always fun to talk to them. We should be like Australians. Fun to talk to. Let me read you this great, this is, this is a great quote in a commentary I read this week. Um, C.F.D. Moole wrote this. This verse is a plea to Christians not to confuse loyal godliness with a dull, graceless insipidity. 
If a Christian is ever difficult company, it ought to be because he demands too much, not too little, from his fellows, responsiveness and wit. Translation, don't be a boring conversationalist. That, that's literally, don't be dull. Be salty. Be fun to talk to. And be gracious. God drops some things in your lap when you're a preacher, like last minute. Last night we were at Sedaris Monthly Meetup. We meet up in a social uh, place every year. They're not every year, every month. Just, just to be in our city, enjoy our city. We were down in Belltown. It was crazy. There was a club next to us and there was a motorcycle. It was awesome. And also in the same venue that we were in, just having drinks and hanging out, was a other, another meetup through like the meetup app called Drunken Philosophers. Fantastic! And it's like, I'm wondering, is God going to open a door for the word? I seriously was wondering. We sat there all day. And as we were leaving, we actually got booted out of our table because there were so many drunken philosophers that, and they were buying more beer than us. And so the owner, are you guys done yet? And so we left. Anyhow, as I'm leaving, guy walks up to me. He says, hey, I don't know if he thought I was a part of the drunken philosophers. I probably just look like either drunk or a philosopher. And he asked me, he said, he said, uh, Who's your favorite philosopher? Uh, you think that's an open door? I said, Blaise Pascal. He said, Blaise Pascal. And he immediately Wikipedia Blaise Pascal. <laughs> He'd never heard of him. And I explained to him why he's my, he has, why is he your favorite? I explained to him. I mean, luckily for me, and this is, that might not be an open door for everyone, I'm a student of philosophy. I love philosophy. I took a lot of philosophy in uh, seminary. And I ended up talking to this man, his name's Mark, please pray for him, for over an hour. Everybody else left, and I got to sit and talk with Mark, and, and I told him I was a Christian. He never asked me what I did for a living, so he does not know I'm a pastor. Praise God. So I, I got to be normal. I got to be normal, which is really hard sometimes when you're a pastor. Uh, I'm, always I'm always thinking, if somebody asks me, should I just say I'm a professor? <laughs> Very similar. Public lectures. Lots of study students. Okay. So um, he never asked me, but he did I did tell him, yeah, I'm a Christian. That's why part of the reason I love Blaise Pascal. He's a Christian philosopher, and he gives a lot of really good arguments. And anyhow, it was a fantastic conversation, and I, lo I loved it. Found out Mark considers himself to be amoral, meaning he doesn't think morality is a thing. We had some good conversations about that. And we get to the end of the conversation, and he actually had to leave, so he said, I got to go. I got another thing going and, and we're standing up like this, right here. And I, I mean, the thing he said to me, I, I honestly almost broke down crying. He obviously has no idea I'm preaching this passage in less than 12 hours. He looked, he, I don't even know why he said, like, it's such a weird way to end a conversation. He just looked me straight in the eye and he said, hey, Dave, I just want to tell you, it's really enjoyable to talk to you. He said, I found you to be humble, gentle, persuasive. And I'm like, I mean, now I'm like, and he doesn't know. Like, I don't know if God was speaking through. I don't know. But that's what we're called to be. That should be our reputation amongst people who talk to us. Please pray for Mark. I'm going to go to drunken philosophy meetups because <laughs> I want to talk more with Mark. I want him to know about the grace and mercy of God. And you know what I said to Mark at the end? After he said those very nice things to me, I said, hey, Mark, I'm going to tell you something that you're not going to like. I said, I find you to be a very moral man. <laughs> and he, he looked at me, he says, I get that a lot. <laughs> and I just thought, you know, praise be to God. You know, we can believe one thing in our head, but our heart convicts us otherwise. So that you, Paul says, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Engage each one. One of the Sedaris principles. Every conversation will be unique. Every relationship is unique. That's the definition of wisdom versus knowledge. You see, if I just throw Blaise Pascal at anybody, even though I have knowledge of Blaise Pascal, that is not wisdom. Most people shut down. 
Wisdom is nuanced knowledge and advice fitted to a given situation or set of circumstances. That's my definition. That is wisdom. And you are called to have wisdom towards outsiders. And if you have wisdom, even more important than a book deal, that's, you can have knowledge and get a book deal. Wisdom, if you, if you truly want it and you have it, what you should long for is a seat at the table, period. A seat at the table, This is the open door opportunity that you want, a seat at the table. That could be a seat at your neighbor's dinner table. That could be a seat on the city council. You want a seat at the table as a follower of Christ so that, not for power or prestige, but just so that you can share your unique views on what brings human flourishing, whether that be parenting advice or marriage advice or how in the world do we end our city's epidemic with drugs. Whatever it is that you might bring your truly Christ-informed wisdom to the table. And here's how you get and you keep that seat. Just to recap, be normal, be available, be fun to have around, and be a problem solver. Don't just bring fluff. Proverbs 12:18 says this, There is one who has rash words. It is like swords thrust, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Your conversation if you have a seat at the table, should bring healing to people because you are the hands and feet and mouth of God in this world. Earn a seat at the table and speak truth. And if this is hard for you, as it is for all of us, remember, evangelism, sharing the good news of what God has accomplished in Christ is not so much a command and a duty as it is a privilege. It's a privilege I mean, imagine if you were the first to hear that World War II had ended and you got to run into your office place or your classroom and you got to tell everybody else, the war is over. That is the gift and the privilege God has given you to declare the war is won. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us courage. Give us eyes to see the doors as they open and not after they've closed. Help us to be aggressively available. Help us to have great conversations. Help us to not be self-conscious. Help us to have Christ consciousness, to know that our confidence is not in our ability to articulate or our knowledge bank, but it's in you. It's in our experiential knowledge of you and that you have given us your spirit that we might walk with wisdom towards outsiders. Give us clear words, give us soft hearts, and give us great harvest as we do this in your name and for your glory today, tomorrow, and every day you give us for as long as the earth revolves around the sun. It's in Jesus' name we pray.